production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Todd Sampson is an adventurer, award-winning documentary maker, television presenter and businessman who started his television career on the critically acclaimed ABC series Gruen. He attends to dynamics we don't often take seriously enough, that every idea and discovery that changes the world begins with seeds planted over long stretches, that curiosity and asking questions fills your life with not only wisdom but joy. This conversation traverses many realms. The dark side of how social media is affecting our kids, the power of knowledge, and how we can rewire our brains at any age. It's loving your family. It's not accolades. It's not summits of mountains or financial profit or likes. When you're on your deathbed, can you say you were a good father or you were a good partner or a good mother? When I'm in that state, I want to be surrounded by my family, not alone in the dark holding my hand. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Todd Sampson is the writer, producer and host of a number of international documentaries, including Redesign My Brain, Body Hack and his newest series, Mirror Mirror, Love and Hate. At its core, this discussion highlights how the internet is changing not only who we are, but our habits and what we can do about them. My hope is that this exchange leaves you rethinking your assumptions about human behaviour and your own patterns and choices. Todd Sampson, there is an absolute wealth of things that we are going to dive into today. But like me, you have a very curious mind. And I wonder, in your youth, where did that come from and, and how was it fostered? I was born on a small island on the east coast of Canada uh, and two parents that uh, never went to school, had no education. They worked in, my mom was a checkout girl at KFC and my dad worked in a factory and my mom was an addict. Uh, and so I spent a lot of my life wanting to escape that fire. So I spent a lot of time adventuring in the forest, adventuring in the snow, sort of getting away. And, and as a boy, not wanting to necessarily be in that home, uh, I just dreamt of living in different parts of the world and climbing. I mostly dreamt of mountaineering. I mostly really? dreamt of, of climbing and uh, and going off and doing adventures. Yeah. So I, I do think that some people are born with 
a deeper sense of curiosity than others. Uh, and that's not a value judgment. I do, I do think some people are, are why children. And I definitely was a why kid. I used to drive mom nuts. So yeah, it's a combination of wanting a different life and being a naturally inquisitive kid. And that led me to lots of places around the world. Obviously, growing up with a mum that's an addict is not an easy thing at all. And I wonder mm. for you, how did you maintain your way of being and, and not drown in an environment like that? Uh, well, I really loved my mother. She's dead now. Um, she died of her addiction, but I, I really loved mum. And I was super close to her. I was the closest to her by, by a large. Do you have sisters and brothers? Uh, including the dad, my yeah. father. Yeah, I was her closest. Um, I got two, I got an older sister and uh, a younger sister. Actually, I have a, <laughs> I, I get confused telling that story because I actually have yes. a half sister uh, that is my oldest sister and I have a younger sister and my brother. Uh, and mom... Mom only really allowed me behind the curtain. I was the one, often even as a child, who cleaned up the shit that no one else could smell. And uh, I don't know. I started to distance myself from it a bit. I started to, uh, I, I, at that age, when you're so young, you don't know that it's trauma. You just mm. think that it's normal, you know? And so I, I found... Uh, hope and I found uh, adventure in a forest and the majority of my childhood existed across the street from my house in a forest and and for some reason all climbing and all that stuff it it made it made things less intense on me Mm. but you know childhood trauma and is something you deal with your whole life it's not something that you suddenly fix or get to the end of why do you think that you were the closest to your mum? Hmm. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, my sister was, I know my sister, the reason my sister wasn't uh, the closest to my mom is because she was super close to my dad. Because of that generation, dad was like a born again father. You know, when Dion was born, my youngest sister, he then poured everything uh, into her. I, I, don't, I don't know. And, and I never asked her. Hmm. Even, on, even on her, even on like her deathbed. Although on her deathbed, I was superseded by the dog. Of course, even, of even, course. even hours before she died, all she could speak about was the dog. <laughs> You know, how's Mario? Is Mario okay? And, you know, it's like, okay, mom, she's fine. She's, it's okay. Mario's fine. It's all good. But yeah, that's my mother. It's funny you say that because my mom always jokes that I'm Jewish and in the Jewish religion, you're not allowed to be buried with anything. The way that you come into the world and the way that you're buried is exactly the same with nothing. So there's no hierarchy for anyone, which is a beautiful Mm. thing. And when my grandfather died and she was speaking to the person at the morgue, she said, do you think I could be buried with my late dog's ashes? <laughs> and he's like, sure. no. <laughs> so yes. I completely understand. Yes. It's a thing. So, Yeah, I just, I just got a dog. Yeah. And now I can say that 
I love my dog more than the rest of my family. And she loves me. I, I, I now realize what mom loved so much about animals. Yes. It's the idea that she could infantize them their entire lives and that they never speak. Yeah. So, so you just project love and, and have it coming back all the time. Unconditional. Yeah. I get it. I, 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 if I'm away from my dog now and she's only 10 months old, I crave her. Like I look forward to seeing that face. I have no idea. Her, her quasi smiling face could be, I really hate this guy. Where's the food? Bark, bark, bark. <laughs> but all I see is love. But it is that whole idea about unconditional love. They're not saying, Dad, when you come back from your trip, can make sure that you've got a present for me. And then if you've got the present, then I just love you so much and I've missed you so much. When my dog wakes up in the morning, she's 13. Even though she's 13, she does this crazy running around thing and her tail is wagging and she looks at you and I think, God, the same thing. I think I love you so much. You are the sweetest dog ever. And really, you don't take up much of our time. And you're so happy always. It's a, it's a, the relationship between animal and human, I think, is so beautiful and one that should be very much cherished. Yeah, there are two types of people, dog people and lonely people. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but you have an interesting story about, I assume it's what you just said, your elder sister, and this ties back to you being so ever curious about how you found out that your sister actually was your sister. Yes. Yes. Geez. Okay. I, I've only spoken about that just once before. So it's strange that it's coming back again. So uh, Wendy, so mom had a child when she was 15 and she told me again behind the tent, she told me that uh, she was alone. Uh, she was seeing my father, but dad didn't know that she was, she, she was pregnant. Like dad was, she got pregnant from a man she barely knew. As, as mom said, it was a one night fling on a rock. Oops, uh, that was her uh, response. And uh, but in, even in mom's at a as a fifteen year old, she knew that she couldn't raise her own child. She was too young. And so somehow, or for some reason, which I never understood, her sister could not have child. So mom had made the decision to give. Wendy to her sister. Now, no one knew this. Dad eventually found out mom was pregnant, that she wasn't remarkably getting big uh, just from eating. And uh, he assumed it was his child. And, and mom, she did a lot of things, but she rarely lied. So, of course, she said, it's not your child. And dad said, okay, I want to keep the child. And uh, I know none of this. But there, it's a kind of a longer story, really. But there was... Um, she was from quite a religious family, wasn't she, as well? Yeah. They, it's not that they were religious as much as the time was yeah. religious. Yes, uh, yes. And to have a child out of wedlock and at 15, you know, deserved a crime worse than death. It was silence mm. and being shunned, you know. And, and, and so that, that's – and she sort of knew that as well. Yeah, and, and at the time I was – I was like – a, uh, like a detective child, and there was a, a molester, uh, a child molester in, in, the, in the community, and I was like trying to find out who this person was. And then that molester had killed a child, and mm-hmm. I was like obsessed with trying to detective work to try and find out how this went. And like most ho- households, I most of the things that are 
interesting and relevant to a child are said when you're asleep. So I would record mom's conversations. And I, I remember the day I recorded that conversation because the molester had struck in, in the city. And I was like, really, I thought mom was hiding info from me because <laughs> she just kept not wanting to talk about it. So I put a little, one of those recorders that you, you sort of push, da- push down, they don't, they don't exist anymore <laughs> with the tape. Yes. And I put it underneath the sofa. And I had done it before. It wasn't a new thing. Uh, and it would record for whatever, 20 minutes or 30 minutes, and then click up. And my parents knew nothing. And then the next day I packed it in my school bag and walked to school and I rewound the tape. And I remember I was, I was a little confused. I was with my friend Herbie. And I remember I was confused. And I rewound it again. And Herbie said, I think your cousin is your sister. And then I didn't tell mom that I knew. And I kept that quiet for I don't even know how many years. And then mom told me. I actually don't even think, when I think back, did I ever tell her that I, maybe I did. I can't remember if I told her that I knew. I I don't remember telling her. I don't remember sitting down going, I knew, mom. I don't remember that. How did it make you feel when you found out? I was too young to understand exactly Mm. what was going on. But my initial thought was, I didn't know that giving away kids was an option. Yeah. So I was, I didn't know that. Like I, I so no, I, I, it wasn't like, it wasn't like I had judgment whether that was good or bad. I, I didn't know. I was just like, it was another one of those things as a young child was working out their family life. There's another thing that was on the back of my mind. Did your sister know? Which? Your oh, eldest, yeah. Did she have any idea that that wasn't her auntie Again, was her I, mom? I'm not... Uh, again, I'm not really certain when she knew. She eventually knew. Yeah. Uh, because it was a wound that basically seeped until her dying day. I joke about the dog. Right? So I, I joke about being, I'm being slightly facetious about on her deathbed, although it's true. Uh, when I would show up, when I showed up when she was dying and I said, hey, mom, um, we would talk for two minutes and then she'd say, how's Mario? But on her moment of death, in the dark, in the hospital, holding my hand. All she could talk about was Wendy. Mm. To the point where with one hand I held her and in the dark, and with the other hand, I text Wendy in America. And I said, mom's dying and she feels, she hasn't, you know, she hasn't healed. And then Wendy sent this long text back of which I read to mom, but she was in, she was sort of comatose. And, yeah. She had attempted suicide and she was sort of not really there, you know, and, and but I, but it's, it's funny how in life, one cut hmm. as a 15 year old and you can just quietly, invisibly bleed to death your whole life, you know, and that's what happened to mom. You've done so many series about so many different things and one being the brain. And I'm sure that you've studied a lot about trauma and there's the big T trauma and the little T traumas and how if we don't heal from those, they just affect us for the rest of our lives and they can come out through different things and the way that our brain functions. And it's an interesting thing when you get to the deathbed of someone or there's a diagnosis or something's put in front of you that shakes you and you think, oh, why did I hold that resentment or... 
the caring about things that are superficial or the worries about something. But when we have death in front of us, mm. what is really important? And it's families is usually family, friends, the, the most important things to us and the community yes. that we're around. And that's why I think a lot of the work that you do is so important to make people understand more about the way that they're living and the way that they can also heal themselves. In understanding your own stuff, you begin to get a broader understanding of other stuff and you never really heal from yeah from trauma. It's just something you learn to manage. And and in, in some ways, because there's been so many deaths uh, in my youth of, of people that it's, it's not that I have uh, been drawn towards it, but I have been desensitized over a longer period of time. And, uh, and it has changed fundamentally my relationship with fear, mm-hmm. which is something I've had since I was really, really young. I can remember being scared a lot. And there was a, I don't know exactly when, but there was a time in my growth as a person where I realized that running to it was better than away from it. And and then again, I just became someone who was constantly facing up to it, you know, and in many ways, maybe just facing up to my mother on some level, you know, but I was always facing up to it. And, and, and that has played a lot in my work. Uh, over the years, particularly in the Body Hack series, that has played out quite a bit in my work. How did you realize that facing your fears was an important thing for you not only to do, but to heal yourself? I think when you experience, look, and I've had childhood trauma, but nowhere near the scale of most people that talk about childhood trauma. So I I did live a privileged life. I felt like I lived a a sort of adventurous life as as a child. But I think that you desensitize yourself to the fire a bit. So you, 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 you learn to shut down, you learn to compartmentalize, you learn all of those. Mm things, even as a child, as a way of coping, as a way of avoiding, as a a detachment. I think I just, somewhere along the journey, it wasn't conscious. I realized that that could also be a superpower, that it wasn't all negative, that if you had the ability to detach, or if you had the, you're going to suffer from an intimacy point of view, but you're going to have an ability to do things that most people can't do, uh, most people can't face. And, And in some ways, I always had that with fear. I, fe- I always feel it. There's never like, you know, I, it's not like I'm, I, I'm fearless or anything. I'm certainly not. But it doesn't repel me. It pulls me. And I remember when I was in, uh, um, where, what was I? I was filming Redesign My Brain, the first series. And I was in uh, America with, um, at MIT. And they were running all these tests on me. Uh, and uh, a very famous uh, a scientist researcher who's done a lot of work on on resilience and uh, a lot of work on optimism bias. In fact, her specialty is optimism bias. And I remember she said, we're sitting down and we're discussing and, and she's, uh, it was off camera because she was didn't want uh, like diagnosis and things to be on camera, fair enough, uh, neither did I. 
And she said she wanted to talk about Mount Everest. And she said, oh, when? So she said, talk to me about Mount Everest. And we had a little brief conversation about it. And she said, but the risks are quite high on Mount Everest. And I said, of course they are. They are, they are on every mountain. At the time when I was climbing, though, it, the, the stats were roughly one in six. So for every six people to get to the top, one person dies. And she looked at me startled. And I said, to me, that's incredible odds. Five out of six are going to get up. And she sat back in her chair and she said, this is what we refer to as optimism bias. And 80% of the population have it and they don't know it because it's a bias. And you have it at an extreme level. And she said to me some really good advice. She said, can I make a recommendation? With all your filming and all your adventuring, you need a seatbelt. You need someone on your crew who's not going to feed that optimism bias. You need someone on your crew who's going to say, Hey, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> By all objective measures, we should not go forward. And uh, that was amazing advice yeah. that, I, that I used. And I had a seatbelt on it nearly every shoot. It's so interesting, though, because I would have thought that most people have negative bias rather than optimistic bias. You know how a lot of the time we're told that most people, as a defence mechanism, they will think negative. So, for example, let's make up a... A scenario, you're going for the job, they're waiting to hear the answer from their, that I'm not going to get it. So then if I don't get it, I'm, I'm not let down. And if I do get it, I'm happy. Yeah. A lot of people have the bias in that way because they want to set themselves up to not be disappointed. Yes. So, so that we have both. In fact, the negativity bias I explore in the, in the Mirror Mirror series because yes. social media companies play upon our negativity bias. They play upon... Um, and ratchet up the amount of negative we receive to capture our attention and our eyeballs. But we have both. But 80% of the population have opt- optimism bias. Mm. Uh, and, and optimism, but they don't know it. I can't remember her name. She's an Israeli uh, uh, scientist at MIT, and she is a specialist wow. in this area. Uh, and uh, she, that's all she studied is optimism bias. And it is very informative. And, it, and in some ways, off-camera, it changed my life because I realized that in whatever way on my journey, I managed to swap what would be inherently a negative. I pay for it in other areas, closeness, intimacy with friends. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an introvert. I'm isolated. I, I pay for it like with all of that. But on the flip side, when harnessed, I could do things that a lot of people go, oh, wow, should you really be doing that? And I can maintain my awareness. I can keep a low heart rate, I can maintain my ability to see the stress around me in unbelievably stressful environments. That's amazing. And that is a gift yes. in many ways. A gift I didn't yes. look for or expect or it wasn't in a box. It wasn't wrapped. It just sort of became. There are gifts in trauma, some areas mm. of trauma. But it is really interesting. I spoke with the guy who rescued the Thai soccer team out of the cave and he had this similar thing in a circumstance where I'd be like oh my god I would freak the f out yeah to do that kind of job you just have to keep your cool and not be afraid like you said and um just focus on what you're doing and not the million things that could go wrong because when you do do that you have great success as you have had yeah, and, and I think there is something, so I, I think there's definitely a genetic component and there's definitely a, a nurture component, uh, but there's also a, a 
technique. I mean, from uh, I've been in two sort of war zones and very bad situations. And I can tell you that breath or meditation, yes. which is often a bit too woo-woo for a lot of people, but breath control. It's breath. Is yeah. an incredible tool. Yeah. Like I remember in, I was in the, um, I was in Iraq during the war in Mosul and there's a young 20 something year old uh, kid really. And he's a sniper and he's hanging out of the window and he's aiming at ISIS and he's, and he's, he's like heavy breathing, slow breathing, heavy breathing, slow breathing. And in the end, I asked him what he was doing and I kind of had a feeling what he was doing. He was grounding himself. So he was using his breath because you cannot focus the hairs of a, of a sniper rifle. You can't line them up with infrequent breath because you'll move too much. Oh my God, so that's he had the incredible. ability to bring himself down and really ground himself. And then the lines of the, the hairs of the target would line. And it's, it was remarkable to see in that environment someone who uh, would not be talking about meditation yes. from his own religious beliefs, yeah. but was really meditating. And that's a skill that I picked up. That is a conscious skill that I learned and developed over many, many years. Breath work, I think, is one of the most powerful tools that is absolutely underrated. I went to a Wim Hof retreat this year, earlier this year. Yeah, you do the ice bars and all that kind of stuff. But the whole thing that they teach you before you do any of that is the breath. And mm. I, I mean, there's all different types of breath, but this breath was one of the most supernatural experiences I think I have ever done in my life. And, you know, you do round after round and someone talks you through it and you're lying there, your body starts kind of convulsing and this and, and that. Yes. Not in a bad way, you know you have control over it. But what happens during this breath is that DMT is released into your brain, which is released when you die. And so then after a few rounds, they get you to kind of put your eyes back in your head. I mean, your eyes are closed, but put them back in your head. And then, the, you know, there were 35 of us in this room, complete strangers. And when we went around the circle afterwards, firstly, when we were doing it, you just heard people bawling their eyes out from all walks of life near you. And then when we went around the room, the amount of people that had had these unbelievable supernatural experiences was crazy. And that was just from doing breath work. Yes. It's yeah, just... It's remarkable. It's yeah. remarkable. It's absolutely and, and remarkable. I've been fortunate seven, like for six years, 17 countries, cultures, uh, and there have been unifying themes with yeah. Body Hack among all those. And one was breath. Uh, and the other one was eating a lot less than we eat in the West. Uh, and another one was just mobility. Yes. Those that live kind of the, the extraordinary keys that they had were mobile people, people that just move. Um, you know, I remember the scientists saying to me during redesign my brain, saying that one of the best things you could do for your brain is not download apps that have brain games on it, but 20 minutes of brisk walking a day. Really? Because for a lot of people, um, what they think is early onset dementia is, is lack of oxygen, is hypoxia. They're just not moving enough. They're not moving the oxygen. And so 20 minutes of brisk walking a day to the point where you can still talk, but you're moving. The other one was breath. Almost all religions and our cultures have some form of meditation or prayer that's involved. Uh, and, and then the other one was just simple diets. You know, a third of the food we need in the West, we eat two thirds too much, you know? And that was, there were some of the themes because when you're doing a thing like body hack and you're going to all corners of the earth, you, you do start to 
think, are there commonalities There's among all There's always commonalities. And there are, yes. Yeah. Humans. Yes. Doing this podcast and speaking to some incredible people from all around the world, it's the common themes that come in for all of us. And going back to what you were saying, there was a guy interviewed a while ago called Jeffrey Rediger, and he is a doctor and also a journalist, and he did a lot of work on spontaneous remissions and how these so-called miracles came to be. But they weren't miracles as such because they had the commonalities. And people who were diagnosed with brain cancer and other types of cancer that are basically inoperable and you're, you're told that you have a death sentence suddenly became cancer-free. So for years mm. and years, he studied these people as well as other, other diseases that didn't have so-called cures. And there was exactly what you said. There was their diet. They changed their diet. Most did go vegetarian of some sort and they changed their mental state. A lot of them had a lot of suffering or they held on to a lot of resentment towards people and they had things in their life that were kind of eating them up and they did a lot of work on that. And then it came as well that they had this they did believe that we're here to be more than just ourselves, that, that we are part of a greater a greater being, like it wasn't just me, myself and my family. They had this this spirituality component to life, which gave them hope. And it was those three pillars that then allowed these miracles to occur. So mm. it, it's so interesting because I think a lot of the time it isn't a once-off. When you're doing all the work that you have, me speaking to people, you realise that there are these common themes. And I think also... When people are leading a life of service to a degree, again, going back to the whole idea that you're doing something for someone more than yourself, you're making a yes. difference. I mean, it's just, there is this- Which is what filmmaking is for me. Yeah. There's just this huge- I don't need to do it. I don't make money. Yeah. I don't, you know what I mean? Like I, I do it because- You're filling wisdom uh, into people's brains. You're helping yes. them on their journeys. Yeah. I have a voice and I want to use it. What I think is hopefully without being Pollyannish about it, what is useful for people. Yeah. You know, and I choose the topics I think are going to be useful for people and, and all times that are useful for me in my life. But, but that's not what I'm thinking about it. In the, when I'm in the field doing whatever, and if there's risk, I keep thinking of uh, a mom at home with her teenage kids sitting on the sofa discussing what's just happening. Yeah. That, that's, that's what I want. And that's yeah. what I want from mirror mirror. You know, that's, yeah. that's my whole reason for doing it. As I said, I don't make money. I don't, I don't need any more publicity. I don't do publicity outside of uh, promoting the shows. I would never go. It's probably why you struggled when you were chasing me. I don't go on things. I don't go on shows or I don't, I, I basically, once I'm finished filming, and the show has gone to air, I retreat into myself yes. and then I try to make something else I think is going to be useful Then I come out. But for me, exactly what you said is filmmaking is something, it's a teamwork thing, which is new for me because I didn't play team sports or anything like that. <laughs> and it's, it's about something greater than me and greater than my team. The reason that I really wanted you on the podcast is because you have done all these things. You have made all these shows that I feel have given a sense of wisdom, as I mentioned, to the audience. So you've got your new series out, Mirror, Mirror, Love and Hate. And it is, everyone needs to watch it because it is unbelievable. And it actually was really like when I watched it, it not only educated me because I have kids, but it was also just interesting for my own habits. It goes a lot deeper than I think a lot of other programs have gone before, which is 
why it is so unbelievably interesting. There was this one particular bit that really shook me and um, it was when, I actually can't even remember the name of the app because I'd never heard of it before, but when this... Oh, the opening, the opening scene. Yes. So it was when you hired the actress. And the police. Yes. What was the name of that app? Omegle. Okay, Omegle, because I've told all my friends about it um, and warned them off it. But can you explain a bit about this app? Yeah, so um, Omegle, I had no idea what Omegle was. Yeah, when you said that, I was sitting there going, I have, I have kids and I have no idea about this either. Yeah, so here's the joke. The majority of kids absolutely know what it's about and parents have no clue. And that, in many ways, is indicative of the time we live in. Yeah. Where kids live in an unregulated, unpoliced online world where they have access to everything and more than we ever had as children. And they can do it when they want, how they want, on mobile devices, in their bedrooms, at night, under blankets. And I would say we probably know 30% of what they're doing. Yeah. We think we know 80%, but we don't. Uh, And kids are so much more educated. And so when it comes to technology. So I was, I'd been put onto this website called Omegle. I pronounced it Omegle throughout the series, <laughs> and then some kid corrected me. Uh, and uh, it's course. basically so. It, 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 the reason we focused on this is because we're talking about how internet social media companies or internet companies in general play off our innate need to connect and belong to others, uh, and to fight the isolation that they've created by putting us on devices mm. and rewarding us. And to do that, we reach out, and we reach out on different formats. And one format is a place called Omegle. Omegle is basically a video chat uh, where there's no age requirements. You just log on. And when we did this, and the tagline is talk to strangers. So when I was growing up, stranger danger was a phrase. Yes, of course. This is called talk to strangers. And so I, I can't even explain the details of what we saw because it was so horrible and we couldn't show all of it on television. But let's just say within the first 10 minutes of being on, I had a, so we did an experiment with a former police officer who has now dedicated his life to cyber crime. Uh, We're in Perth and we got an actress to come on and play a 14 year old. And I am controlling, she doesn't see anything for trauma reasons. I'm controlling the conversation. It's all done messaging and her face is on. Yes. And what it is, is just to explain, it's like, because uh, I'd, I'd never seen it, is that you can just log on and you see someone, you both got webcams on. So, you know, yep. if you were to log on, you have a webcam and then the stranger has a webcam on as well. And then, you know, you just click on the, the box and you see a stranger. That's basically yeah. it, yeah? Yep. And so I'm on 10 minutes and boom, it comes up. Boobs. Show boobs. And I'm like, huh? And then she pretends she's typing and I type. I don't want to show my boobs. My mom is downstairs. He goes, lift up your top and show me your boobs. And I said, I'm only 14. And he says, show boobs now. And then what we couldn't show was the level of which he groomed me. He was like, get on your fucking knees now. Really? And I was like, oh, oh. And then what we also didn't show is I lost it. I had a bit of a snap. And I went around to the actress, to the camera. And I, and I said, you. so he starts ejaculating. <gasps> Shut right? up. And so he's ejaculating and uh, looking at her face. So I come around the screen and I go to the camera. I said, you should be in fucking jail. And he goes, his screen goes blank. So then I get up and leave the actress and I go back to the computer screen. And by the time I got back, his screen goes up again 
and he's back to masturbating at her. <gasps> he not only did that, but he tried to get me off and onto WhatsApp. And I had set up a, a Instagram, a fake Instagram account of which he groomed me to that account so he could get more of my information. Now, the, the most heart-wrenching thing of that, of that opening sequence is not the, the pedophiles that are all over it, all over it. The most heart-wrenching thing for me was when I bumped into those three. Oh, that was, One, one yes. girl's nine years old. Yeah. She's a nine-year-old. They were bored. Yeah, and they're under their covers at home. And, uh, and so and when my actress asked, they said, oh, we're just looking to see some scary penises. Yeah. Now, now I can imagine an audience looking at it going, oh, he's being alarmist. Um, you know, those kids are just having fun and kids are just using it for fun. Here's the reality, though. That might be okay for that girl. But there may be another nine-year-old whose parents have just broken up or who's being bullied at school or who is suffering from some sort of mental illness that goes on in her bedroom at night under the covers, connects with this man. This man then grooms her, which is what's happening. The rise is like this. The man then grooms her to another social media site of which he picks up all her details because he's leaving a wake of details. They look at what's behind them. They, they look at, they, they get their address from the metadata. They get all of this. Wow. And that girl may not be safe. And that's why something like that needs to be shut down. And that's the reason for me to show it. Because there is one bit where you're, where you do, you're crying. I felt like, oh my God, I, I need to tell people about this. My kids are a bit young still. Well, they haven't, they did not know what this was, but I need to warn them of it. How is this app existing in this world? I just don't understand. Well, there's a lot more. There's a lot more. What than country that, right? makes this? Where it's, does it come not, from? Well, this is the problem, Sarah. This is it's not made. No longer are things made and held accountable by boundaries or by borders. Uh, th- this was made by an 18-year-old kind of mysterious kid really? who's gone off to be an entrepreneur and tech entrepreneur. Like this, this stuff is being created all the time, and it's constantly changing. Yeah. Like, and so someone looks at that and they go, "Oh, Omega, it's very specific." Okay, well, then let's move that focus onto Instagram or TikTok. Sure, it's not as blatant. It's not. It's not as overt. And there are some loose forms of self-regulation that are happening. But what we know is that the rates of self-harm, mental health issues, cyber suicide have been dramatically increasing. Yeah. And we used to believe, right? We used to believe research told us that the reason was screen time. Current research has corrected that in saying we may have had that wrong. Now they believe the rise in mental health issues, the rise in depression related to online usage, the rise in self-harm and in suicide is directly correlated to the introduction of the like button in 2009. And that you can add to TikTok, you can add to Instagram, you can add to Twitter. We are not meant to get that much feedback that we're getting these days. So yeah. it's easy to look at Omega and go, well, my kid wouldn't be on that. And then and then ignore the rest of social media. And some will say, okay, that's false equivalent. They're not the same. Hmm. Okay. Let's look at the architecture. Let's look at how they capture our attention. Absolutely. You know, people are like, you got to set up a TikTok account. And begrudgingly, I did. And these were adults who said it. They were kids. Got to put your reels on TikTok. There's such a big audience. Advertisers, they're going to come on board. Like, there are so many things. Anyway, so begrudgingly, I did with my, you know, 70 followers. I don't think I follow anyone on that platform. So I barely look at it. But when I did the other day, I it just feeds me stuff, random stuff. Yes. 
So I'm on there and something comes up about a 911 call, right? And it's this whole recorded call on TikTok. This girl who was 10 or 9 or something, she was calling her father was beating up her mum and she's screaming and then cut a long story short, the mum gets in the car because, you know, he was choking her and they're trying to get in the car. The dad's like holding onto the car. The mum by mistake runs over him and he dies. And this is all on the call. And I'm thinking, what the f*** am I listening to? I got off horrified, horrified. And I'm an adult. Mm. Why is this on there? There was no purpose of that. That just made you feel like shit. It was terrifying. I mean, would this girl even know that that call was on there? It's just shocking. Yeah, it's an algorithmic world we live in now. And Jeff Siebert, who was in Social Dilemma, he's also in our film, and he was explaining algorithms. And he was saying, Todd, just to be clear, there is no human alive that understands how these algorithms now work. Yeah. They're self-learning machines. They're on their own. And TikTok is one of the most advanced algorithms created in China. Um, it's, it, it, it basically learns you and then feeds you what it thinks you you want because it's the whole goal of social media is hold your attention as long as they can so they can sell you advertising. They yes. can put advertising in front of you. That's how they make their money. They don't make their money from your attention. They make their money from monetizing your attention. Mm. And so in the case of TikTok, if you go on TikTok and you're feeling sad, you might look at a sad video. You hover. You don't have to touch it. You hover over a sad video. TikTok algorithm goes, sad videos. Boom, boom, boom. More sad videos. Within 20 minutes, the algorithm, if you stay on, knows you pretty well. But let's just say you're having a sad day. It will surround you with sadness. And the reason it will do that is because it knows that holds your attention. And TikTok... It can be positive. Yes, it can. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a Luddite, and nor do I believe we should just put all our technology away. But TikTok can also be anything that our kids are on, on average, for 50, 40 to 50 hours a week. Right? We wouldn't let our kids watch TV that long. Yes. And even if we did, TV's regulated. What kids see, you know, and they get around it. it but in the case of TikTok, my, my daughters, for example, have watched the whole Ukrainian war on TikTok. Yeah. Some soldiers in Ukraine are TikToking the war from the front lines. And influencers wow. on TikTok, and I, I say this line in the film, and I know there'll be some journalists that won't be happy, but influencers are the journalists of the internet. Oh, yeah. And they have more influence than our parents. They have more influence than schools because they have more influence than journalists themselves. Because if you imagine, and we, we, we were showcasing this girl, Tilly, one of her videos where she does um, face tattooing got 34 oh million, 34 <laughs> we, million hits. We there have, isn't a journalist around who has that much. I know. We have to talk about this girl. I was just about to bring her up because this is, my daughter's only seven, but this is something that she would do where this girl, Tilly, she watches a video about how it's really cool to have freckles and how they look really cute and sexy and whatever. So she tattoos freckles onto her face and it's an absolute mm. nightmare for her. Yeah, she ends up in hospital. Yeah. And she's no fool. It's easy to, to, to watch that part of the film and go, oh, well, you know, she's this, she's that. She is no fool. But the power of the bandwagon effect, the power of the like button and affirmation at a time when a kid is basically becoming who they are. They're in their yeah. development stage. They're in their growth stage. Um, it's so strong. 
and so hard to resist that it's easy for us to judge those of us that have lived a life where we had internet and then or didn't have internet and now have it. Yes. This is their world. There's one thing that you say in the documentary, which I think is so interesting, because a lot of people my age will say, oh, we grew up with TV and it's the same. Like, we're fine, so it's the same. Mm. But what you actually point out, and again, I've relayed this to quite a lot of people, with the rise of ADHD, it is linked to the fact that we're looking at these devices, we're going from one app to the next app, we're scrolling from video to video, they're, you know, 30 seconds, a minute long, even less. And so our mind is like racing. When we were watching TV back in the day, it's not racing to the same degree that these social media apps are. Yes, it's also not as interactive. Yeah. So so we would watch TV. There's a little bit of interaction, but we really have a different, the first episode is about love. And how our notion of what love is has changed. Yes. Because we now have these, these relationships, what they call parasocial relationships with people online. And the reason we have them is because if I'm following you, Sarah, and you're tweeting all the time, I feel like I'm in your life. Yeah. Because I know what you've eaten. I know where you walked your dog. I know what you... And so I start to think I have a relationship with you. And... That never happened with television. I mean, parasocial relationships came from television where you would believe you know Sean Connery or you would believe you know Brad Pitt because you see him on TV and you follow a little bit of what he does. But that has been amplified to an unbelievable level in online. And so we're developing a new form of relationships, which is really, as the psychologist in the film says, are hollow forms of relationship. They're not real. They're, they're, they're this sort of fake one of the psychologists refers to them as sort of fast food McDonald's relationships where yes. you eat them quickly and then feel sick afterwards. I mean, it's really an eye-opening series. What do you think your biggest outtake was from it all? I went into it not pro-regulation because I'm not pro-regulation generally. <laughs> Not because I think regulation is bad, but I just think the government is often not competent to regulate, particularly particularly within the business communities. I've changed my view. Uh, I think we we are now in an experiment. 4.6 billion of us are now linked up into one system controlled by a handful of white American men. And they have complete freedom under section 230, which is the law that gives them neutrality. They have complete freedom. They can do whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. They can publish whatever they want because they're not liable. And their model is built on harvesting our attention at all costs, including ratcheting up conspiracies, COVID, QAnon, because they know it gets more attention and more attention means more advertising. I do not believe as someone who worked in the advertising business, I do not believe they can change on their own. It's like saying to a drug addict, just stop. Mm. They won't just stop. And so I think the only way around is regulation. And I think we, that, and so I just want to clarify something. It's not binary for me. So the biggest argument against what I just said is people saying, but, but I've met my love online Mm. on dating apps, which we cover. Uh, I, I, 
it's connected communities that normally would not be connected. It's allowed you, Sarah, to broadcast your messages. It has. Thousands and thousands yeah. of people. And my argument against that is it's not binary. I want to keep all of those things. Yeah. I want to keep all of the goodness that the internet has given us. And it's given us more good than bad at this stage. But we should regulate. We should protect. We should protect our kids. We should protect ourselves. And I, I think we can have both. It's not one or. Mm. I mean, you obviously worked in advertising. Do you still work in advertising? No, I haven't for about eight years. Yeah. I mean, I do. I'm growing. Yes. Yes, I'm growing. You do, obviously. Ten nights a year. Knowing advertising back to front and working in it for a long period of time, what do you think about then placing a lot of emphasis on those people that are trying to sell things? It goes back to that whole idea of what if they have a lot of the power and we can get them on board to stop these things. Say, for example, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Nike, if those companies got on board and didn't think that they needed to advertise on these sort of platforms, maybe push the regulation thing. Once these platforms are regulated properly, we'll advertise on there. Yeah. I think we're all, we're all in it. Yeah. The big companies are in it. And a lot of it, without without getting overly deep about the issues of capitalism, coming from someone who was the grease of capitalism for many, many years of my career, the, the model is built. The advertising attention-based model is, is, is what's made all these companies profitable. And the result is they own the water we swim in. So if you want to get your, your podcast out, you need to use social media. Oh, absolutely. And I also need sponsors to make money from advertisers. Yes. So it's yes. this yes. It's a circle. And so they've got you. Yeah. And, and they've got all of us. I mean, if you think about... I mean, it's insane to think Facebook also owns Instagram. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's like, and it's, it's insane to think one man maniacally pretty much owns the way we now communicate. Yes. Like our television stations, our newspapers, our podcasts that are owned by holding companies, they're all regulated. Mm. You can't go spewing hate yeah. into this business. They can't. Look at Myanmar. Yeah. Look how culpable Facebook was in Myanmar. I personally do not believe Mark Zuckerberg set out to destroy the fabric of society, but that's what he's done. Mm. And it's against his fiduciary responsibility to do anything other than that. And they can say whatever they want. They can go on and, you know, say, you know, we, we're trying, but how, 97% of his revenues from advertising, mm. there is no way in hell He's going to change that without regulation. No way. I wonder, knowing what you do from making this series, how are you allowing your children to now use social media? So I've never held myself up to be a role model or the ideal parent. (laughs) Uh, That's worth saying. Short disclaimer before I'm about to say. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a moment in the film, which you know, because you've mentioned it, where uh, after this whole Omegle thing, Yes. I went home to my daughters and I said, I said to them, I said, um, girls, I was super excited. You know, something I know that they didn't. Yeah. I said, girls, there's a website called Omegle. Uh, you need to stay away from this. It's filled with criminal activity and pedophiles, preys on our innate need to belong. And, and they both looked to the floor and they were a bit, a bit shifty. And then my oldest looked up at, my youngest looked up at me. She said, I'm, I'm not a boomer, but she looked up at me and said, dad, stop being a boomer. We've been on that side for three years. That's old school now. 
And I just, it shocked me. I was like, it was just like someone had just hit me in the stomach and I pulled back and I was like, uh, and my temptation was to scold. But that's not how to do this with the internet. Yeah. We, we as parents that don't live in this world, they're not swimming fully underwater. We need to immerse ourselves with our children, not as police, but as partners. So I, at least I knew that and I could talk to them about it. And then I got them to take me on a medical, which we didn't put on camera. But, and I, I now I'm sort of involved. I don't follow them on social media, but I am now much more involved in their social media world. So a couple of things we try and do, which, which are recommended by the psychologists in the film. Uh, the, the first one is if you can, Put a cutoff time on devices in the bedroom Yes. at night. And the reason for that is when kids are at that age, our brain doesn't fully develop until the mid-20s. So it doesn't, we're pretty much dominated by our amygdala and particularly dominated by the emotional center of the brain, the amygdala at night. We're most vulnerable. And that's when the cyberbullying tends to happen. I mean, it happens 24 hours, but mm. a lot of it is concentrated at night. So, so instead of saying no devices, which is a silly thing to do, it's like saying don't breathe to kids. Uh, we, we set some regulations around it. We say, okay, after nine o'clock, the device is charged downstairs or in another room. Uh, the other thing is a detox. It's such, I tried it. It was a nightmare, but everyone's getting used to it now. One weekend a month, we say no phones. Yes, that's no phones. good. That's and good. then maybe two weekends a month, we say no phones. And like every other type of addiction, once you start pulling back a little bit, you begin to detach from it or, or, or take some of the connections away. You're snipping the, 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 the ropes that hold you to it. Mm. Um, yeah, there's, there's plenty of things we could do. But I think reducing screen time over a period of time is a good idea. And then learning about their like habits. Going back to the start of the conversation, we were talking about trauma because social media also can produce a lot of trauma. Now, knowing everything that you do. Do you have practices at home? Do you see a therapist? And even going back to the body hack stuff, like is there breathing stuff you do every day, meditation, that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I do. I do quite a lot. So I, I, one of the joys of having a dog is you get to have moving meditation, also yes. known as dog walking, <laughs> uh, early in the morning. But I try to meditate every day. Uh, I watch my diet I, I intermittent fast. I don't recommend, I'm not prescribing or blindly recommending that for everyone, but it works well for me. Yeah. I stop eating at six o'clock and I don't, or seven o'clock and I don't eat again until midday the next day. Uh, it keeps me kind of alert and I, I don't do it for diet reasons. I do it because I feel good when I do it. Yeah. I try to exercise every day. The hard part for me is rest. So I try to rest as best I can on my off days and uh, yeah, and read. And write, but most times I'm writing documentary stuff. You mentioned prayer and that sort of stuff before. Do you believe in prayer? Do you use prayer? So I am, a, I am not a religious person, although I have great respect for religion in general. Uh, I, I, but I, I personally am not. But I, I do pray in my own way. Yeah, I was going to say from a spiritual is, perspective because yes. I'm not religious, yet I always say things here and there. Yeah, well, I realized another tool that I developed as a child, and it was originally from climbing when I was like 12 or 10 years old, was self-talk. Yes. I, I, I taught to, to, to climb, especially uh, rock face climbing without ropes as a kid, you, you have to talk a lot to yourself to say you're going to be okay. 
you're going to be okay. Just one more, just reach a little bit further. And I realized throughout my life, I've been a self-talker. Sometimes I do it out loud, which freaks people out. But the majority of the time, I'm just talking to myself and, and talking myself into situations or out of situations and saying calm or, or I remember when I got to, I had, it wasn't an epiphany, but as someone with a critical mind, it did make me think, what the hell's going on here? I had been climbing on Mount Everest in my mid twenties. I had been, I'd lost 15 kilos. I had uh, failed at one attempt that season uh, in a, got trapped in a snowstorm. Uh, I had finally made it. I'd broken my ribs. I, I was just a mess. You know, I hadn't slept for days, hadn't eaten for days. And I get up onto the summit of the mountain and I could see the curvature of the earth from the summit, 8,850 meters. And all I could do was look up and say, thank you. Mm. And then I had this moment where I thought to myself, who the fuck am I talking to? <laughs> and I remember I sat down and I was like, okay. And then I kind of shuffled off and continued my journey back down into a storm. But I had that moment where I was like, who exactly am I talking to now in this worn down state, in this raw, pure state of someone who's just been basically dehumanized by this mountain for three months? I looked up and... That's beautiful. Thanked someone. <laughs> What's the best advice that you have ever been given? The brave are not without fear. They're brave because of it. Yeah. Uh, and um, the other one, which is a very banal thing, but, and I know you could relate to this because you get asked to do a lot of things, I'm sure, is that no is a full, is a sentence. Mm. And that there is no need to justify to anyone. If you don't want to do something, and someone asks you to do something, you'd be very polite. And you say, no, thank you. Yeah. There is no need for a follow-up. There's no need to explain why it's no. There's no need for you to justify your right to have your own time. But it's okay just to say no. It's, it's a sentence. Absolutely. And it's a very difficult one to do. I, I'm sure you experience it. Like, yes. If someone asks you, don't you to do something. You don't upset people, yeah. No, you don't upset people and, and you want to justify yeah. I know because, and what I've always found is if I, if I try to lie and say, no, I'm busy or whatever, they'll say, well, how about a time when you're not busy? And then, and then I get into this sort of <laughs> spiral where I'm thinking I should have just said no. Yeah. But you so know what? You know, I think that's wonderful because to me, being a person of your word is so important. So when you're saying no, you're saying no, but you're not pretending you're going to be doing anything else but that. No, Exactly. And I know that's banal, but it, and it seems a bit simple, but man, that changed my life. It just took pressure off of me to have to justify everything to everyone else all the time. Yeah. As if, as if especially for you and me who belong in the public eye, yes. and there's a lot that comes with that, it is, it is nice to be able to have your own boundaries. Yeah. Say, well, actually, but not to be rude. It's not like, no. Like, Naomi, my wife, still keeps, if I, someone asks me to do something through her, and I say, well, it's a no. And she's like, well, what do you want me to say? <laughs> Uh, okay. I just want to say the no thing, the thing with the N and the O, you know? And she's like, well, we can't just say no, but, but yes, we can. We can do it politely, but we don't have to justify our yes. lives. Yes. Anyway. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Family. Yeah. Yeah. Just to come full circle on, on mum, you know, like it's, it's, is that, being an introvert and 
and isolationist is an excuse to avoid intimacy with those you love. Mm. And I just, it took me a while. It took a deathbed. What's the most mystical experience that you have ever had? Ah, ah. Um, I was, I was uh, embedded with uh, a voodoo priestess in Ethiopia. And I had drunk some things I don't really understand what it was. And they stripped me down and they put me in the middle of a village with a burning pot on my head and sort of whipped me nicely while hundreds of people screamed all around me. And I don't know what happened there. I just totally tripped out. It was like I had a snap. Really? It was amazing. But I just, I was lost in voodoo for that moment. What were they trying to do? Um, give me an experience. Yeah. Um, they, I started shaking. It's, it was, it's an episode of Body House. Yeah, yeah. Shaking. My body was convulsing. I don't know what was going on. I, I still don't know, but I just let myself be there, you know, and mm. just go with whatever that experience was. It's hard for someone with a scientific mind to fall into the voodoo world, but I certainly fell in. Do you believe in that stuff now? After experiencing something like that, do you believe that, I mean, I don't know so much about voodoo, but do you believe that there is a higher power of some sort? Or when you put your mind, a lot of people put their mind to something, I don't know if it's like a vibration that can occur or or something can change. There can be something changed. I believe we don't know. Yeah. You know, and, and there's magic in that. Yes. Uh, that, you know, even science at its best can only take us to a certain point and then it's all unexplainable. Yeah. And that's kind of cool, which gives you either naive, silly hope or, or belief that there's something else potentially yeah. going on. You know? So anyway, yes, I, I believe in the unknown and I'm, I'm good with that. I like that. What is a life yeah. of greatness to you? It's loving your family. Mm-hmm. It's not accolades. It's not summits of mountains or financial profit or it's not likes. It's when you're on your deathbed, can you say you were a good father mm-hmm. or you were a good partner or a good mother? And I think that's a life of greatness. I've achieved lots in my life. I've been very fortunate. I've gone after many, many, many things. And all those things seem fleeting Mm. now. You know, like they just seem like when mom died, I kind of went, okay, she's gone now. All that is gone. Mm. So I kind of think when I'm in that state, I want to be surrounded by my family, Mm. not alone in the dark holding my hand. Oh, Todd Sampson, I'm, I'm so happy that this worked out as it was always meant to be. You are a very good person and, you know, you really have, as you mentioned earlier, devoted your life to service, to help others. This new series is beautiful and thank you for the wonderful discussion today. I'm so grateful. Pleasure. I'm glad we bumped into each other on the journey. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, 
where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.